Reading is taken from 1 Samuel, chapter 18, starting to read at verse 5. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. We continue our series in David. We're looking at uh, what it is that we can learn from uh, his relationships, his various uh, relationships. We've looked once at his relationship with Saul. It takes up uh, many chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, so we're going to come back. And this is the second and final time we look at David's relationship uh, with Saul, King Saul in particular. And we're going to root it in uh, 1 Samuel 18, those words we've had read. But as we come to the Lord's Word, let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our hearts are in your hands, and we pray now for your word to find our hearts and to change our hearts by winning them afresh. We pray for your spirit to fashion our hearts such that they are satisfied and delighted in you. For then we will know freedom. And it's in the Lord Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, nothing has the potential to create um, angst amongst my children, quite like receiving spontaneous gifts from me and Philippa. Um, the joy in their own particular bag of sweets or whatever it is they've just received often lasts as long as it takes their eyes to move from their bag of sweets onto what their siblings have received. And the gifts, you can see it happen, the gifts are immediately judged for their value and uh, whether there has been an exact uh, equal appropriation of gifts And if they are not judged of equal worth, then there is much angst and envy. 
And I take it, as I look at my children, I see much of that in myself. And I think if we are honest, we see it in all of us. Because comparison that leads to discontent and envy is not just a children's issue. It is a uh, human malaise. Take advertising. The invitation behind most advertising is to compare your life with an ideal that is set before you by the advertiser. And the whole point of an advertising campaign is to create discontent in your life such that you will become discontent enough to buy the product that they are suggesting will make you very, very happy. Advertising is big business because advertising works. And advertising works because we are prone to comparison, to discontent, and to envy. It is a very human malaise. And as we look again for the second time at David's relationship with Saul, I think what we see, certainly in those verses we had read to us, is we see that dynamic of comparison, discontent, envy at work. And it, it plays out, and we'll see it plays out in profoundly destructive ways. It plays out, it's, it's destructive socially, and, and we'll see uh, it move Saul from being David's friend to being David's enemy. Plays out physically. Uh, we'll see David begin to, uh, sorry, not David, Saul begin to struggle physically with, um, on the one hand, anger, on the other hand, fear. And we'll see, too, that this dynamic is driven by something spiritually destructive, something at work in the heart of King Saul. We'll see the spiritual roots of discontent, envy, and its consequences. We'll see them laid bare as we look into Saul's heart. And I pray that as we look into Saul's heart, we'll look through Saul's heart into our own hearts, too. But we'll also see, I pray, in David, the way of freedom. A heart that is free from envy and anger because it is a heart that is full. It is a heart that is full of the goodness of God. And that makes all the difference in the world. So let's walk through uh, the story, or at least these, uh, this part of the story, these verses in uh, 1 Samuel 18. Have a look down. Let's walk through the story. And as we do that, I hope we'll see that the story resonates with our own lives and experiences and the heart from which these things are born. Have a look at verse 5. Whatever Saul sent him, that's David, to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. So I take it, verse 5, the relationship starts positively. You know, David is a gifted soldier, and Saul recognizes that. He acknowledges that. He promotes him according to his gifts. Uh, He uses him as his gifts demand. He uses him to further the cause of the kingdom of Israel. That's good leadership. Saul here is secure enough in himself to acknowledge the gifts of David and to utilize them. I remember I was at a leadership conference several years ago, and uh, one of the speakers, I forget who now, uh, made this point about leadership. He said a good leader is someone who is secure enough in themselves and dedicated enough to their church, if that's your context of leadership, or to their business, if that's your context of leadership, to look for, to appoint, to raise up people that you know are better than you who can take it on, 
who can fill in for your weaknesses, your gaps. Good leaders are not threatened by talented people. They're excited by them. They think, here is something we can use in the furtherance of our church, kingdom, business, whatever it is. And Saul does that, doesn't he, in verse 5? That's what he's doing. So far, so good. And then Saul hears a song. Have a look at verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul and his army with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. See what's happening here. Saul is beginning to play the comparison game, and the comparison displeases him. Notice again, look, look, friends, look down. Notice how perverse Saul's reaction to the song is. Has he failed? He's not failed, has he? He's killed thousands of people. He's a great warrior. His decision to promote uh, David to being a general in his army is fully vindicated. It's shown to be a wise decision. He's not, this is not sarcasm. He's not met with scorn as the women come out and sing their songs to the army returning home. He leads this army, the army in which David serves, back to rejoicing. And yet rather than be satisfied with his part, rather than be delighted with his gifts, rather than be thankful to God for the victory and the advancement of the kingdom of Israel, he hears the song, verse 7, and his heart, his heart is caught and it's twisted and it's turned in on itself and he begins to compare himself with David and rather than if you like count his blessings he compares himself and he grows discontent and that discontent is immediately joined by its natural bedfellows of envy and anger and the question is why what what's going on here And the answer, it seems to me, is that something is going wrong in Saul's heart. Something is going wrong. His heart has been hijacked by an idol, by a God substitute. It's been hiding away in King Saul's heart. And it seems to me it is now drawn out by the song the women sing. Doesn't verse 8 give us a little insight? Have a look at verse 8 again, friends. Doesn't it give us a little insight into Saul's heart? Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. Why? Because he thinks they have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? That's what's going on in his heart. Do you see? He's, He's growing angry because he doesn't think he's getting the credit he deserves. And he's beginning to fear for his position as king. In other words, what is it that has Saul's heart as he rides in at the head of his army. What is it that's right at the center of Saul's heart and is drawn out by this song? Is it not power and the praise of men? Are they not the things that lie right at the heart of Saul's heart? Are they not his gods? Are they not the thing for which 
he is living? Are they not the thing to which he is looking for significance and self-worth? That's why he reacts the way he does. That's why he allows himself to mentally begin to compare himself with David and become envious and angry at David's success. That happens because he believes that his gods of power and the praise of men are being threatened by David. We live in a society that encourages us to go compare And I want to suggest this evening that comparison is a spiritually dangerous game. It can be a folly. It can be a curse. So often it will lead us to discontent. I know that I battle with comparison that so often leads to envy and regret. Your battles may well be different. Maybe you find yourself comparing your career or your marital status or your marital satisfaction or your body image or your holiday destination or your house or your grades, or whatever it might be. But I take it we're all of us prone to this comparison with others. And friends, when we find ourselves comparing ourselves to others and and that tug of envy that so often follows hard on the hills of comparison, when we find ourselves doing that, I want to suggest that is a spiritual warning light that is flashing, or should be flashing. It's saying danger danger. And it's at times like that we need to ask ourselves the question, hang on, is something, is something hijacking my heart here? Why am I so interested in this comparison? Is it because this area in which I'm comparing myself actually is an area that I am looking to for significance? or self-worth, or status, or whatever it might be. Is that why I'm so interested in this comparison? Why am I becoming envious? Why do I feel that, that tug of envy in this area? Is it because I think, well, you know, if I had that, what this person has, if I had X, then I'd have the good life. Then I'd be happy. If so, that's, that's a spiritual warning light, isn't it? That, that's flashing danger. That's flashing God's substitute is just wanting to hijack our hearts. And such an attitude, as we'll see it play out here, it's, it's profoundly damaging. It's, it, it, it's profoundly destructive. I mean, it's an attitude, of course, that dishonors God because it, it, it means we're finding ourselves doubting him and his sufficiency and his goodness, doesn't it? it? When we find ourselves thinking, even subconsciously, if only I had X, then I'd be happy. X is the key to the good life. Then we're saying, God, you are lovely, but you are not lovely enough. We're saying, you're the icing on the cake, but you're not the cake. You're, you're, you're good, but you're not good enough. Our relationship, your, your promises, your grace all that I am in you, the future, the eternal future that you have for me, these are good, but they're not good enough. There is something better out there, I believe, than Jesus for me. You can't be my sole source of contentment. I need to supplement you with whatever it might be. And that is, that is dishonoring to our Father. It's also damaging to ourselves, isn't it? Because I mean, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Saul's enjoyment of God and his goodness. He's walked for many years with the Lord, but now he is far from him. And his, 
his enjoyment of God, his delight in serving God as, as the leader of the army, as the king of Israel, it's all been swept away in this, in, this, in this moment. It's all swept away. It's gone. It's consumed by envy and bitterness. Who loses in the comparison game? Well, it's not the person you're jealous of. It dishonors God. It, it damages ourselves. And friends, we're... Where the narrative goes, where I want to focus is it it destroys our relationship with other people. When an idol has our heart and we are gripped by discontent and envy, our relationships suffer. We see that, don't we, played out in in Saul's deteriorating relationship with David. Do you see how his jealousy plays out? Plays out in two ways. First, it plays out in anger. Saul is angry with David. Verses 8 and 9, 10 and 11 make that point. David, uh, Saul tries to uh, kill David with a spear, and we'll find actually in many of the chapters now that come basically until the end of Saul's life, at the end of the book, he is constantly chasing David and trying to murder David. He is consumed with murderous anger towards David. Saul's envy drives him to anger, and that says the Bible is a sure and certain path. Envy is the root of many a fight. That's what happens when an idol has your heart and you grow envious of others. Saul is angry with David because David threatens his idol of power and the praise of men. He sees David taking it from him. Those are the things he treasures. So of course he responds with anger. I shall pin you to the wall. Listen to uh, James from the New Testament, chapter 4, first two verses. He says this to a church where there's uh, infighting and bickering. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You war with each other because you've lost the war in here, says James. Something has hijacked your heart You have made something more precious to you than God, and X has it, and so you hate X, or you war to get from X what it is that you think will make you happy. So again, friends, when we find ourselves envious and angry, it is a time, isn't it, to to pause and to think, what is happening in my heart What is giving rise to this? Anger with people is often a warning light that something has hijacked my heart and they are threatening it in some way. And so I respond with anger. They have what I want or they have more of what I want and we don't and so we simmer or perhaps we we are snide towards them to their face or behind their back or we are cold or we are distant or perhaps we even lash out depending on our temperament. We all have different temperaments. It will express itself in different ways, I guess. But you may well, if anything like me, have felt that sense of coldness towards someone, hostility towards someone because actually I'm envious of them, because actually they have something that I think I need. It's a warning light. Envy so often leads, as it does in Saul's case, to anger. 
But it's interesting, isn't it, how the narrative goes on. It also leads to fear. Verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, again, here's the refrain, he was afraid of him. It's interesting, striking, isn't it? Fear, and then it, in a sense it's flip side, sorry, anger, and it's flip side, fear. When Saul sees David's success, he's not just angry at him, but he's also, at the same time, afraid of him. And I think that's exactly what we'd expect if we're in the grip of an idol. I read this from a man called Ed Welch, who um, is a a sort of biblical counselor in America and theologian, and he just has this little phrase, and I read it, and I thought immediately of these verses. He says, fears reveal functional gods. Fears reveal functional gods. Because, I think his point is, because we believe that this person or this thing or this set of grades or this set of results or whatever it is, we are afraid of them if we believe that they have the power to take away from us something that is crucial to us. Do you see? If we're living for something other than Christ, nothing can take away Christ from us. We'll come to that in a minute. But if something other than Christ has has displaced Christ from the center of our hearts, then of course it can be taken away. And we will be afraid of anything or anyone that we perceive could take away from us that which we are starting to treasure. It's very striking. Saul knew that God's spirit had left him. He knew that his days as God's anointed king were numbered. What does he do? Does he repent Does he seek the Lord? Does he seek a new season of service? No. He responds in anger and he responds in fear because it's not the Lord that he really wants. It's power and it's the praise of men and he sees it's all beginning to head David's way. And so he's angry and he's frightened. We see in Saul a man with a hijacked heart who cannot but respond to comparison than with envy, anger, and fear. But friends, I think we see in David what can happen when God has our hearts. How does David respond to the hostility and the murderous hatred he receives from Saul? Jez picked up on this. I want to come back to it. Such um, wonderful verses. Such an interesting set of verses. Uh, Chapter 24. The same thing happening in chapter 26, but we'll go to chapter 24. Do turn with me. Have a look at verse... Have a look at verse um, 10. So uh, Saul is now trying to, um, you remember, uh, kill David. David's now um, had the opportunity to kill Saul. Saul finds himself in a cave. David's hiding in that cave. Saul doesn't see David. David could easily kill uh, Saul, but he doesn't. And this is why. Um, Some urged me to kill you. So this is David speaking to Saul. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, My father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. 
May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. In other words, what does Saul, uh, David do when he has the opportunity? Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't fight fire with fire. Rather, he responds to Saul's hatred with humility, with honor. He doesn't kill Saul when he gets the chance. Rather, he moves towards him with love. He moves towards him with huge vulnerability, actually. Saul could easily, again, have had him killed at that point. And the question is, how does he do that? How does he respond in that way in the face of this unfair, unremitting hatred he is getting from King Saul? And the answer is, it is because he has a heart for God. He has a heart that belongs to God and is satisfied by him. God is David's delight and his treasure. And therefore, he is not controlled by Saul. He is not controlled by Saul's response to him. David is truly free in this moment. Truly free to do what is right. He's not gripped, you see, by the idol of self-preservation or self-advancement. His comfort, his reputation, even his life are not critical to him. Therefore, he is free. He is truly free. Free in God to forgive and indeed to move towards his enemy with love and humility. David sees the bigger picture. He savors God above all else. I love these words from uh, David. We're going to come back to them again in a minute because they've been very personally powerful for me in my battles with uh, comparison. Uh, They're words from Psalm 4. Uh, You don't need to turn to it, but let me read a couple of words. It's the Psalm of David, Psalm 4. He says this, Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. Do you see that? Lord, let, let your face shine upon me because it is that that fills my heart. More than grain abounding, wine flowing. It's that. You have my heart, and therefore I'm free. And again, in this, David is a picture, is he not, of the Lord Jesus. Listen to these words, again, taken from the same article written by Ed Welch. He writes this. Track the life of Jesus, and you will see that he was never angry because of the insults and derision of the religious leaders. He never took the attacks of others personally. That's what happens when you live to enhance the Father's reputation. You empty yourself of any interest in your own personal honor and reputation. And you love other people more than they love you. That's what happens when you know that your father is the perfect judge, so you don't have to be the judge. And then he quotes those words from 1 Peter 2. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Isn't that exactly what David does in chapter 24? The Lord is judge. He'll judge. I entrust myself to him. I'm not going to return your threats with threats. Not going to kill you when I get the chance. I'm going to move towards you in love and humility. Exactly as the Lord Jesus did. As we seek to further our Father's reputation above our own, we will find in the power of His Spirit the ability to move towards our enemies, not with hatred, but with humility and love. 
And it is that response, you know, of humility and love, which for a while at least seems to turn Saul's anger and fear aside. As you carry on in chapter 24, verse 17, Saul says this, He wept aloud, you are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just told me now the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he not let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me today. There is a sense in which as David moves towards him with love and humility, for a season, it's only for a season, unfortunately, but for a season, it seems to soften Saul's heart. The key to live the life of David, the life of freedom, rather than that of Saul, the life of discontent and envy, is to savor Christ above all else. As I said, I remember those words from verse four, speaking uh, from Psalm four, speaking personally and powerfully to me when I was struggling with discontent and envy. And I was struck by some words that a, a, an old saint many hundreds of years ago wrote when he was meditating on Psalm 4, and he said this, David does not in the least degree envy the wealth and enjoyments of others, but is altogether contented having more satisfaction in seeing the countenance of God beaming upon him than if he possessed garners full of corn and cellars full of wine. He rejoices more in the favor of God alone than earthly men rejoice when they enjoy all earthly good things. Their joy in the abundance and increase of their wine and corn is not so great as is his joy in a sense of the divine goodness alone. The Lord is David's joy and treasure. His heart is satisfied with him. Such a savoring of God will spare us a lifetime of discontent, of envy, of anger, and of fear. But it won't be easy. That is a fierce spiritual battle. And so we must pray. We must be people of prayer in this battle, and we must pray not, Lord, give me what I want to be content. We must pray, Lord, fashion our hearts so that you satisfy them. Fashion our hearts so that you satisfy them. We must pray and we must fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. Friends, as I finish, as we look upon the Lord Jesus, who upon the cross met our hostility with humility and redeeming love and so wrought the healing of our souls and hearts, And as we look upon him who continues to move towards us in humility and love, forgiving our failures to love him as we ought, and indeed filling us with his grace and his power. And as we look upon him, so his spirit will fashion our hearts, so that he and he alone satisfies their deepest longings. And then, friends, then we will know freedom. Then we will know freedom from discontent and envy. And we will know the freedom to love even those who oppose us. God grant us such grace. Amen.